augmented reality applications are slowly making their way into the world of the consumer. Pokemon Go created the magical experience of seeing Pokemon superimposed upon the real world. IKEA's mobile app lets you see how a couch would fit into your living room, which has a significant improvement on the furniture buying process. Augmented reality applications can have even more dramatic impact on industrial enterprises. Have you ever set up a factory? You might need to build a conveyor belt. You might need to put together the parts of a giant machine that extrudes steel. You might need to fix a silicon wafer fabrication machine. It takes an expert to set up these heavy, complicated machines. Scope AR is a company that builds augmented reality tools. One of these Scope AR products allows users to telepresence with each other to collaborate on the construction and maintenance of heavy machinery. Imagine I'm setting up a factory, and I have a complicated piece of machinery, let's say a conveyor belt, in front of me. I've never constructed a conveyor belt before. I put on a hollow lens, and I set up a VoIP call with an expert who has experience with that piece of machinery, and they point out what I need to do by superimposing 3D arrows and text and other instructions on my field of vision. They can share my experience and help guide me through the process. This is such a flexible tool. You can imagine applications for augmented reality assistance being useful in medicine and construction and education and lots of other fields. Scott Montgomery is the CEO of Scope AR, and in today's episode, we talk about the state of AR, how the AR tools from Apple and Google compare, and how the similarity between the tools used for mapping the world in AR relate to the tools used to map the world by autonomous cars. It's actually very similar technology. Scott was a great guest, and I hope to have him back in the future. We've done some other great shows about augmented reality and virtual reality applications, as well as the nature of reality. You can find these old episodes by downloading the free Software Engineering Daily app for iOS or for Android. In these podcast apps, you have access to all of the episodes of Software Engineering Daily, whereas in your normal podcast player, you only have access to the most recent 100. And with these apps, we're going to build a new way to consume content about software engineering. Right now, it's only the podcasts, but over time, we're going to expand it to other forms of content. And they're open sourced at github.com slash softwareengineeringdaily. If you're looking for an open source project to get involved with, we would love to get your help. Shout out to today's open source featured contributor, Edgar Pino. He is working on a real-time chat application for Software Engineering Daily so that we can have chat rooms for people to discuss the episodes easily. It's a really innovative piece of work, and I'm happy to have Edgar contributing to the open source community. With that, let's get on with this episode. Scott Montgomery is the CEO of Scope AR. Scott, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks. Great to be here. I want to talk about everything in AR that we can get to in the next 40 to 60 minutes. But let's start with the state of AR and what you're working on. What are the low-hanging fruit applications where AR is actually useful today? 
It's interesting. Uh, the AR landscape has gone kind of a dramatic shift in the past six months since you know Apple came out with ARKit, and uh, you know that's kind of brought the the word into the, into the common lexicon now. Everybody knows what augmented reality is. So you know, I, I still think that we're a ways away from finding the killer use case in AR. We've been focused on AR for you know over five years, and have been kind of gra- gradually grinding out the typical use cases uh, that are really providing value. So I think we're Almost everybody sees the initial value in augmented reality is uh, in the enterprise. Part of the reason for that is that uh, augmented reality, it, it's still uh, nascent. It, you know, the hardware, especially wearables, is clunky. Uh, there's a lot of limitations to it. But if you solve the right problems and, you know, saving a lot of money with enterprises, they're more than willing to overlook those limitations to get their workers to, to use this nascent technology. Uh, and they're definitely leading the way. So in particular, I think layering augmented reality on top of remote assistance applications is a really interesting. You know, part of the, the great aspect of augmented reality is that it allows you to communicate better, more visually in a, in a 3D space. And, and it's just a lot more natural to interact in, in three dimensions. And so in a remote assistance use case, you've got technicians and experts collaborating over video and if you're just using FaceTime you're still telling a guy what to do. It's like hey look at that thing on the left or the right or whatever. No not that left, the other left no not that left. And so if you've got an augmented reality experience you're able to you know add three dimensional annotations on top of reality and it goes a long way towards improving communications and collaboration right. And then in the, yeah. the, sec- the second use case I think that uh, everybody's exploring is work instructions. So being able to show you uh, more in-depth illustrations and communicating uh, how to perform things. So uh, in a very basic way, you know, with Google Glass, you've got text-based instructions ju- that are just overlaid on top of your, your, your glasses. More Things that we do more commonly are actual 3D uh, models overlaid on top of equipment showing you how to do things. So augmented reality really allows you to communicate intention a lot better and uh, leaves a lot less room for error and miscommunication. Yeah, you've described the Scope AR product at this point. So if I'm, let's say I, I'm running a uh, factory, a, ser- a, a, a company that, that does factories, and I'm maybe I'm making a, uh, my, my factory makes speakers, for example, and within this factory that makes speakers, there's all these complex pieces of machinery. There's steel extruders or big complicated saws or things like that and if i'm setting up a new factory let's say you know i I got one factory and it's going great and i decide i'm going to expand to another factory on the other side of the country and the person who is setting up this new factory they've got to set up all this complicated machinery and they've got to understand how to use it and the people at the original factory they know how to use that technology but unfortunately they're across the country and they're not present with me setting up the the machines in the factory this is where scope ar can be useful because i can get on a remote telepresence call with somebody at the factory that's already been set up and they can walk me through the setup of this complex machinery while I'm wearing, for example, a HoloLens, and they can see what I'm seeing and can place little arrows and instructions and helpful visual guides that will be overlaid across my HoloLens and and will guide me through the process. Am I I giving an appropriate use case of Scope AR? 
Absolutely. That's that's uh, exactly what we do. But there's other, a whole bunch of other enterprise use cases that are kind of similar as well that we don't really focus on. Things like things like warehouse part picking. So if you can, uh, if you know, let's say you're in an Amazon wor- uh, warehouse and you are walking up to a um, an aisle with you know a hundred feet stacked of, of uh, boxes. How do you know which part to go pull and do that as efficiently as possible? Well, if you use augmented reality to be able to highlight the box and, and guide you uh, how to get there. That's a heck of a lot better efficiency than you know paper and trying to do it the old-fashioned way, correlating an ID number or even you know they used to use QR codes and go and, and scan those, but that's just, that's also a little bit inefficient. If you can actually see that in three dimensions where to, where to put it, a heck of a lot more efficient. And then in terms of packaging, you can get an algorithm to optimize how to package boxes, and then uh, it shows you how to do it, and then you go ahead and do it. So you can save a lot on space and, uh, just again, more efficiency. So, you know, it's all about that user interface layer and, and you know, allowing computers to help you do things in the real world and in, in a real task. All right, yeah, and that, that's really where we're seeing almost all the value in, in AR. Mm. So let's talk through some more practicalities, and then we'll get into the engineering are there serious workplace safety issues that happen because people don't have clear sets of instructions for how to use heavy machinery? Yeah, definitely. I, I think uh, uh, we haven't seen a lot of benefit, you know, improving uh, safety with heavy machinery so much. We've certainly mm-hmm. seen a dramatic, and, and I think the reason for that is that you know those those industries because they're so uh, so uh, safety conscious, they're a little bit averse to new technologies. Um, they have the procedures mm-hmm. that, are, that are established. They do they've d- done them a certain way because they've learned a lot of mistakes along the way, and so they don't really want to change right now. But in the same vein, we have seen a dramatic decrease in error rate in a whole lot of different uh, use cases. So in terms of you know manufacturing and uh, assembly instructions, uh, and then in, in terms of maintenance use cases. So because you have these visual instructions that are guiding workers how to do, how to do things, the author of those instructions uh, can communicate his intent of how to uh, perform a procedure much more clearly than with just text-based instructions or, or verbally. So if we think of a really basic example like IKEA furniture, for example, everybody screws up IKEA furniture. When I talk about you know the company, I would say three quarters of the time somebody's like, "Oh man, I wish I had this for IKEA, right?" Because it's just a common thing. Everybody, everybody that, that's why up. they bought. That's why they bought TaskRabbit, right? Yeah, exactly. That's right. Exactly. And but if you were able to see that furniture being built in front of you, step by step in three dimensions, you would never put something on the wrong way or use the wrong screw or anything like that. The whole reason we screw up IKEA furniture is because the instructions are poorly communicated and we misinterpret them. So if you take that to uh, a much more complicated procedure and a much more high stakes procedure like manufacturing or or heavy equipment maintenance, it just makes a lot of sense, and you can see why the error rate is, is significantly decreased. And, you know, we're seeing in some cases, we're decreasing error rates down to exactly zero. So it's, yeah, it's pretty impressive. And what about medicine? So my my dad is a doctor. I talk to him a lot about telemedicine. Are there applications today for AR in the telemedical industry? Yeah, absolutely. We're in discussions with a couple of companies doing interesting use cases. We haven't got super far yet, but they're certainly excited. For us personally, we've stayed away from medical just because there's a lot of low-hanging fruit in heavy industry, and we've got to target you know a certain niche. But I think there's a lot of opportunity in telemedicine. You know, one of the I think one of the success stories in medicine that I've heard of is Augmedics, and they're just using Google Glass as a recording mechanism. So they're they're essentially just using it as a head-mounted video camera to record a session between a patient and 
and a doctor. And that dramatically decreases the amount of data input that doctors have to go through because you know doctors spend a significant amount of their time writing up charts and essentially doing basic data entry. And they can't offload that because they're the ones that understand the problem and have the communication with the, the patient. But if you can record that using um, Google Glass, then that's interesting. It's not exactly a great use of augmented reality, but you know, for head-worn displays, it's interesting. One of the use cases that we've, we've we actually have seen is training in terms of medical equipment, which is kind of an offshoot of um, of heavy industry, just you know, applied to the medical field. So if you can, you know, uh, hospital equipment in particular is very complicated, and, and training is expensive and costly if you do it wrong. But again, because of the in- improved communication, if you can show in augmented reality how a particular device is supposed to be used, then that, there's an immediate benefit. If I'm an Amazon warehouse worker. And my day is spent walking around the warehouse and picking items off the shelves and putting them into boxes. The goal is obviously to get a robot doing this because this is not work that we should have humans doing. This is highly automatable. And we're trying to figure out how to train machines to do this. You could imagine somebody walking around with a headset that has a camera on it and recording their view of the world and the things that they pick and you can imagine also giving them AR hints about where they should be going and what they should be picking from and in in an ideal world maybe you would be able to use that the the data like you know the hints that we're giving to the humans to train eventually machines and maybe you want to give humans the same kind of hints that you eventually will give machines, and then the machines can just learn to do the picking that way. Uh, is that is that a fruitful avenue for, for us to pursue, or am I thinking down the wrong avenues of the future? No, I, I think that's perfect. You're, you're exactly right in that, uh, you know, right now robots need to be trained in how to perform tasks. And by a lot of industrial robots are trained by watching humans actually perform that task with computer vision. So part picking is, is no different. Ideally, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, we've got this head, head-worn headset tracking where you are, probably mapping out um, the, the 3D mesh of the, uh, the facility, uh, understanding in 3D where the parts are going. That would entirely be possible. There might be more efficient ways to do it, but I think your, your line of thinking is, is right. And like I said, that's certainly one of the most interesting use cases of augmented reality. So, so you said we have seen industrial applications where machines have been successfully trained by watching a human? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, a lot of the uh, the robots used for assembly need to be trained some, somehow. And so if, yeah, you, you, if you've got a human hand that is able to assemble something, that machine can also see how to put it together. I'm not, I'm not an expert in, in robotics, but I'm pretty sure I've hmm. seen this in some of the automotive factories I've visited. That's pretty cool. Okay, well, I'll need to interview somebody about automotive (laughs) stuff. Let's get into engineering. Scope AR was started, you just said five years ago, but I think, I thought it was seven years ago. I think it was something like that or yeah it's a a little bit of a a gray area Uh, so officially we started in 2011 so yeah Hmm. it would be uh six years ago Um, okay sure so and i guess yeah i I guess unofficially it started even further than that so the way we had started was i had developed some computer vision technology for another purpose i was actually trying to build a game for the apple tv 
And this didn't really pan out, <laughs> mostly because the Apple TV never came out with an app store. And so, you know, once the uh, WWC came and went and there was no app store, I was kind of like, well, crap, what the heck do I do with this computer vision technology I, I spent so long uh, perfecting? And I realized that it could actually be applied to augmented reality. And so we started looking at, you know, interesting use cases. We started looking at marketing and advertising use cases. But of course, this was 2011. And, you know, even still, we're not really seeing um, advertising and marketing use cases take off. But, you know, certainly before uh, AR was even in the lexicon, people were not willing to pay for this crazy new advertising platform in AR. But we had a customer that came to us and said, hey, can we use this for training? And so we did a really quick proof of concept with them. Uh, It went really well. And then uh, they said, cool, we want to show this at a trade show. And so this was a a giant mining trade show in Las Vegas. And it was a big company. So we had uh, pretty much the the best uh, spot on the floor in in this giant trade show. And it was a bit of novelty at the time. We were supposed to show it a few times a day over the three-day show. And we ended up showing it um, over 100 times. And every time we showed it, people were coming up to us being like, oh, my God, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen, which was really impressive because, you know, the machines we were sitting beside were these, like, six-story giant mining trucks that you find in, you know, you know the oil sands in northern Canada. And, you know, with us, with our, you know, little geeky augmented reality thing, people were saying this was the coolest thing at the show. So that was pretty cool. But the uh, the stories we heard from, from people about how they could see this in the field were really why we started doing what we do. One gentleman in particular came up and said, this exact piece of equipment you guys are showing. I've been maintaining this my entire career for 35 years. And uh, just now I learned how to do it properly. I've trained hundreds of, hundreds of other guys to do it the wrong way. I've probably oh, shortened no. the lifespan of this thing the way I do it. <laughs> so I probably cost my company tens of millions of dollars by doing it the wrong way. So I need this technology. How do I get it now? Like it's sell to me right now. And so, you know, just hearing that kind of, of story, we are like, wow, apparently we found something here. Uh, we should probably pursue this. And that's really how we got kickstarted. Sure is interesting how many successful products come out of ill-fated games. <laughs> it's true. It's true. So you stumbled onto this augmented reality set of use cases. Did you have any background in computer vision? I mean, what did you need to know about computer vision six years ago to start an augmented reality platform? Yeah, so no formal training in computer vision. I actually did my degree in bioinformatics, which was uh, kind of a combination of of computer science and genetics. So essentially, I was writing algorithms and machine machine learning algorithms to analyze the human genome and do protein folding. But, you know, I've always been a guy that just, if I have a problem, I figure out a way to solve it. And so I basically just started playing around with OpenCV and started building things around OpenCV and and doing augmented reality that way. So, yeah, no formal training, just kind of, you know, grinding and figuring out how to solve the problem. Give me a little bit of the story of how, what happened after that conference where you were talking to somebody in a mining company. I mean, I'm sure you came home from that conference with adrenaline pumping through your veins, just think, wow, this is actually a huge set of opportunities. You know, we could build augmented reality stuff to train people to do all kinds of stuff. Where did you go once you had that adrenaline pumping through your veins? Yeah, I mean, so clearly it was very early and, you know, we'd stumbled upon something, but we had absolutely no idea uh, how to turn it into a viable business. So, you know, we started essentially consulting. So we got contracts from guys like Boeing and Toyota and NASA, building out initial proof of concepts with them. And eventually we realized that the all of the proof of concepts we were building 
came down to a common set of use cases and something that we could build into a platform. Uh, and this was a, a novel platform, and it was going to solve a whole lot of the problems that were going to happen at some point when this became viable. So, you know, scalability, maintainability, uh, ease and speed of authoring uh, these types of instructions. And so, yeah, yeah, after those, you know, first a few, a few initial use cases and a whole bunch of others, we started building a platform to solve those. And that was the, really the genesis of our, our products. And, and I want to just point out, again, this is actually another interesting way that people explore ideas while hedging their bets. Is like, so one, how do you explore a new space? Well, build a game. Two, how do you explore a space once you've found some kind of product market fit, but you're not exactly sure what the company looks like, you consult, and you do consulting until you understand the idea space a little bit better. Once you understand the idea space and the, and the enterprise customer process a little bit better, you can start to encounter, okay, what are the canonical use cases? How do we build an abstract platform for it? And then you start to get to the real engineering problems that are going to give you the most leverage once you solve them. So what were those hard engineering problems that you eventually decided to focus on? Yeah, so it was really about listening to the customer and just understanding their initial problems. So I guess the the first big project we had was you know many many steps. And so it was about 150 steps with a really really complicated piece of hardware, which meant you know it was thousands or I think distinct parts. And so we built our our software on top of Unity, and uh, which actually I mean this was 2012 I guess, and and back then it was one of the hardest decisions I, I had to make, which was choosing a, a three-dimensional rendering platform. There was a whole bunch out there. There was Unity, obviously, uh, Unreal, a few of the kind of lesser-known game platforms. There was, like, open-source software and stuff like that. And finally, we, we settled on, on Unity, uh, mostly because when we when we first... Actually, let me, let me back up. When we first built that proof of concept for that uh, trade show, the customer wanted basically the impossible. They wanted augmented reality glasses, and they wanted to, you know, have a reliable, uh, good-looking demo to show at this trade show. And so, really, the the first step was they gave us a whole bunch of money, and they said, "Hey, go buy a bunch of augmented reality glasses and like everything on the market. And if nothing is suitable, then buy some." So we did buy every pair out there. There weren't many, and we ended up building some. So, and that was incredibly challenging. That was, you know, the first and last piece of hardware I ever built. But essentially what we ended up doing was we partnered with uh, Epson, who had just launched a a pair of glasses. Uh, They didn't have a camera on them, so they weren't really augmented reality enabled. But uh, we ended up hot gluing a a webcam on top of these glasses, running the webcam through USB to a laptop, running the computer vision calculations and the rendering on the laptop, um, outputting it to VGA, converting the VGA to a component, and then hacking the operating system on the glasses to accept external component input and then displaying that view in the glasses. So this is one of the first pair of AR glasses, total Frankenstein mm. solution, but it worked as a proof of concept and clearly, oh. you know, kickstarted the company. But, you know, the, the real reason we chose Unity as a platform back then was because it had a great plug-in architecture that allowed you to plug in various uh, three AR toolkits. So by this time, we had kind of moved on from my homegrown computer vision solution. I realized at that point that there were companies that were actually working on real AR toolkits. They were doing it much better than I could. I could spend $2 million in R&D trying to build an AR tracking solution that wouldn't be nearly as good as, as some, of the, some of the commercial guys out there that were really focusing on it, and who actually had you know legitimate academic backgrounds in computer vision, not just my hacky um, problem solving. 
And so yeah, it, so this was even even six years ago. People were building AR platforms. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, there weren't a lot. Uh, I mean, at the time, if I remember correctly, there were kind of three. There was Vuforia, who was owned by Qualcomm, who was actually an acquisition. There was Matteo, who got acquired by Apple and is essentially the basis for AR Kit. And then there wow, was okay. um, another company out of uh, LA. I can't remember now. Anyways, so uh, Matteo. <laughs> so so Apple. Apple kind of bought them and then developed it further. What did what did Matteo do, or when was that acquisition? So yeah, Matteo had been around for a long time. Um, I believe they started in like 2006 or something like that. Although I, I could be wow. totally wrong. And they so they were based out of uh, Munich and really initially were focused on the automotive industry. So they thought the killer use case for augmented reality was basically allowing customers to customize the look and feel of their cars. So if you could recognize the shape of a, of a car and then change the, um, the paint and the, uh, the grill and, and you know, customize it, that would be really a compelling use case. And so they focused on a lot of those things. They focused on a lot. They did a lot of, of different things. They were kind of the same as us. They did a lot of consulting, but they also had this toolkit they released. They also had a very early version of uh, the work instruction platform that we have that allowed you to kind of create a, a procedural animation type thing. But yeah, Apple acquired them in 2014, maybe 2015, I think. And it was because they had the best computer vision out there, the best augmented reality algorithms. Uh, They were also working on some interesting things with bringing the algorithms into silicon. So, you know, the way you typically speed up calculations is, you know, first you write it in a high-level language like like C Sharp, then you can optimize it further by bringing in the C, then you can optimize it further by doing a lot of assembly for your, you know, really the, the parts of the code that need to be really fast. And then if you can't get that fast with assembly, then you build them into silicon where you actually have specific hardware that can, can speed it up. So that's, you know, how you get really good speed out of graphics cards because it's specialized hardware for doing those specific calculations. So... I think Apple's strategy all along was to take these calculations and bring it into the hardware to really speed it up. And that's how ARKit wow. is so great today. Wow. Okay. That's, that's incredible. You know, this is what I hear about the Apple acquisitions. Like Apple acquires a company, and then you don't hear anything about the company for the next 11 years. And then <laughs> Apple brings forth a fully developed augmented reality platform based on the technology they acquired 11 years ago or 10 years ago, or eight years ago, whenever it was. Definitely. Well, you said they were acquired in 2015, I think. Something like that. I'd have to do the research. It was okay. 2014 or 2015. All right. So maybe maybe only two to three years to bring it to bring it out of silence to bring it to, to market. But that's so cool that they put it into the chip. I mean, this is what you see with the machine learning stuff more recently, where everybody's trying to press the machine learning calculations into the into a special kind of chip. Because why wouldn't you? It's you know you got matrix calculations that happen all the time in a machine learning model. Why not make these more efficient by throwing them in the chip? But AR, so this AR, so help me help help the listeners understand, I guess, a little bit what scope AR does because you were building stuff long before AR kit made it to market. Okay, I think here's the question. AR kit came out recently. Uh you were building your own software up until then. Actually AR kit and AR core came out recently. These are, you know, Apple's augmented reality platform and Android the Google's augmented reality platform respectively. Have you had to refactor the software that you built over time in order to run it on ARKit or ARCore? Because obviously you would like to take advantage of the on-device uh, speed up. I'm sorry, on-chip speed up that uh, ARKit has, for example. 
Yeah. So just to kind of clarify what we do, if, sure. I, if I look at the, the augmented reality market, I, I kind of th- see three distinct areas and they're kind of blurring it into two. But there's the computer vision calculations that essentially take the measurements from the camera and uh, other sensors like the IMU and combine them to get a pose. So a pose is essentially your orientation in 3D space and your position in 3D space. And by getting that pose, then you can augment your reality by placing a 3D object in the camera relative to some surface or something. And so in order to do that, you need uh, really fast uh, calculations to keep your pose updated so that you can change the, the position of that, those 3D models relative to the camera image or in a, you know, in a pair of glasses relative to your vision, right? So that's the role of computer vision in, in augmented reality. The second kind of piece of it is the hardware. So whether it's phones or tablets or smart glasses, they need to be good enough, good enough hardware to be able to do those calculations fast enough. But also the displays need to be responsive enough to update the, the image relative to where you're looking so that you have a good experience. If you don't have a good experience, if you don't have a fast enough processor or a, a refresh, then you get a, a concept that we call swimming, which is uh, you move your device, but the camera doesn't update as quickly or the, the, posi- the position of the image doesn't update as quickly. And so it lags. And that means that the connection between your superimposition of this object over reality loses its its connection to reality. And so you get kind of an uncanny valley type of effect where it just doesn't become real anymore. So where we really focus is uh, the third piece, which is content creation. So as soon as you have you know really good hardware and really good computer vision, and you can create rudimentary experiences by placing you know things in in your reality, now you need to make that useful. And so much like you know back in the early days of computers, we might have image programs to create basic images. Well, then somebody you know was bright and wanted to string a whole bunch of those images together in a video or in a in a PowerPoint presentation to illustrate something. And so uh, you needed additional software to make that easy to use. So what we do at Scope AR really is focus on that content piece. So our WorkLink product is kind of like PowerPoint for augmented reality. It makes it easy to bring in 3D models from your manufacturing processes and then build out a workflow to illustrate a procedure. And it's kind of like a a Visio flowchart type thing. And for each step in the uh, flowchart, you can associate uh, text, video, audio, and video, and text-to-speech, just like you would in a a normal procedure. But then you can also associate these 3D models and superimpose them on top of real equipment to show how to do things. And then the second piece we do is the remote assistance piece. And so this is content creation created in real time between an expert and a technician to collaborate and, and really solve a problem. So getting back to the original question, going back to the history of the company, so when we first started it, there were a whole bunch of different uh, computer vision toolkits that were available, or I guess not a whole bunch, but two or three, and more have definitely popped up recently. But we realized that the market was going to shift really quickly. These toolkits were, were coming out frequently. Hardware was being updated frequently. You know, now we're seeing a kind of a, a new device or a new set of, of computer vision technologies uh, coming out every few months. So we realized that it was really necessary to be agnostic so that we could really quickly take advantage of the latest and greatest technologies. So we really built a, a layer that abstracted all of the, the hardware and computer vision capabilities into the platform. So what that meant was that when AR kit came out, it took 
us you know two or three days to actually adopt the ARKit platform because it had all the same components and, and uh, APIs that all the rest of the platforms did. You know, you need essentially to get your camera image, you need to get the pose, you need to get. There's a few other things you need to get, but you know, it's a pretty uh, simple abstraction. And so we are essentially able to plug and play. We'll do the same thing with AR Core. We did the same thing with HoloLens. You know, if there's another toolkit that comes along, then we'll be able to adapt it pretty quickly as well. But you know, it's really just good software engineering thinking ahead to be able to abstract it so you can easily plug and play. Got it. So I've seen a little bit of this as I've toyed around with AR Kit. That if you want to build, let's say a if you want to build the Instagram for augmented reality, where you know you instead of putting a photo filter on a photo or putting a photo putting a filter over a video, you want to have augmented reality assets come into that video, and then you know you can imagine the bright future where we're all wearing augmented reality glasses or contact lenses, and we walk past a restaurant. And the you know a little pop up comes up over our glasses that says, "Hey, you know, fifty percent off a meal at McDonald's today if you come in." That's a pretty appealing advertising platform, but it's actually really hard to do for a number of reasons. One of which is it's you know there's there's not like an off the shelf way to build augmented reality assets. You've got to build these ad hoc 3D models. You've got to figure out how to get the 3D model into your app. You've got to figure out how to serve it to users. And then that's not even talking about how we're going to integrate sound and whatever else with those 3D models. You're talking about building a workflow manager for doing all of that stuff. Uh, it sounds sounds pretty useful and sounds pretty flexible and sounds like you also were you have been interested in the whole augmented reality as an advertising tool yourself for a while so I'm sure you ha- you've had these kinds of thoughts go through your head yeah absolutely <laughs> uh, there's definitely a lot of moving pieces to it some of which exist now and some of which don't like for example if you were going to do this augmented reality advertising platform where you're looking at uh, a McDonald's and wanted to show an ad there's a lot of pieces that go into that so you know the first piece in this, this is where we're at, and it's pretty basic, is that um, you need to know, let's say if you've got a pair of, of AR glasses, you need to understand where those glasses are looking, where you are in space, both at a, you know, at a sub-millimeter level, but also so a sub-millimeter level relative to the ground and to the store, but also you need your GPS coordinates to recognize which McDonald's you're looking at and how far away it is. We can do that now, but the next thing is it would have to recognize at a pretty accurate level, not necessarily millimeter but where that McDonald's is in real space so that you could overlay that ad on the McDonald's and and then you know place that content in there and stuff like that. So, you know, uh, we're a little bit far away from that. Computer vision isn't great at recognizing objects yet. It's starting to come, you know, especially with the new uh, machine le- machine learning features coming, you know, baked into Apple's uh, Apple's products and, and a few others, but also cloud-based machine learning platforms. You can do some kind of object recognition rudimentarily, but then moving that into an augmented reality context and really understanding what it is and overlaying on top of that, that's really challenging and not really feasible right now. One of the most common 
features we get asked is, you know, if I'm looking at a piece of machinery, can it recognize that I've removed removed a nut or removed a bolt or put a wire in the right place? And, you know, the answer is no. You know, we're barely at the point where we can actually track you properly and, and know where your phone is in real space at, at an accurate enough level to show animations on top of that. But recognizing really small changes in, in, a, in a scene is really challenging. That's going to require a lot of machine learning to understand that that is a nut, in fact, and that it has been moved from previous frames. And then to, to know, I mean, it, it's just a pure content problem that, you know, that nut has been moved off of a bolt. So to recognize that and then to program it to recognize that, that's another challenge entirely. <laughs> so there's a, there's a whole space of problems that are yet to be solved and areas of businesses that um, are going to be solved at some point. In the area of self-driving cars, you hear the debate between people who are saying we need LIDAR, which is the lasers, I think, that the, like lasers that help you understand where you are in space, and maybe they help with mapping. I don't. I need to do some shows on cars, but that versus computer vision. So you can, you know, you can. So there's different ways of doing this simultaneous localization and mapping, where you can just do computer vision, where you just have cameras around your car and you're bringing in the world and and understanding from the computer vision the depth and where you are in space and where other objects are. You can also do lasers. You can also do, I think, radar or like bouncing sound around places to understand what's going on. It sounds like there's like similar, similar debates in the like AR world because, for example, Apple it has a new phone coming out. I think that has lasers in it that are related to AR kit. Can you help me understand this this conversation? Yeah, absolutely. So. It's all about the amount of information that you can perceive about the world and, you know, having senses to, to understand what's around you. So similar to us humans, you know, we have many senses. We have touch and hearing and, and eyesight to be able to understand where we are. Uh, and then that's all tied into a, a centralized system in our ears where the only reason we can stay standing up is because there's a tight integration between our ear and our, our um, mandibular vestibular system uh, with our eyesight. So that, that's why we get seasick. And when you start to play with those senses in VR, for example, a lot of people get seasick because the what they're seeing doesn't line up with what they're uh, they're feeling and how they're moving. So similarly, in the computer vision the autonomous driving world, you need to merge a whole bunch of sensors and derive information out of all that raw data. And there's a, a whole debate around you know processing power and you know how how you get that in real time because of course that's necessary to make decisions for, for autonomous driving, and then it's it's necessary in an augmented reality context to be able to figure out where you are in space as I mentioned and you know manipulate your pose to update your your 3D uh, models. So one of the reasons why ARKit was so amazing is because it was able to do really good augmented reality experiences with only an RGB camera. So an RGB camera is just a plain old camera, the same thing you'd find in, a, in a, an SLR camera or a webcam that you know, we've had that technology for decades. Um, so it gets a, a red, green, and blue set of pixels. It ARKit essentially combines that camera, the information coming out of it, with the IMU, so your accelerometer and your gyroscope, to get that pose estimation at a very fast rate and very accurate. 
all so I've been in the augmented reality space for a long time, and all previous toolkits that are out there that try to do this without fiducial markers, they could do it, but A, they had very high CPU usage, which made it you know really uh, heavy on, on battery consumption and, and not viable for a lot of applications. But B, if you moved your phone too fast or if you moved it out of the area of initialization, so you know for even the best ones on the best hardware, you'd get like 45 degrees of freedom. And by that, I mean if you were looking at, at an object, the coffee cup, for example, and, and if you rotated it 45 degrees around that co- coffee cup, it would usually lose or at least you know move, drift the, the estimate. And that's because of the accumulation of errors. Because you're trying to merge the um, sensor information from your IMU with your camera, um, sometimes they don't match up. And so um, calculation errors start to accumulate over a period of time, especially if you're moving your phone quickly, then you, you completely lose, completely lose it. Uh, what Apple's been able to achieve is a really great experience where it essentially never loses the tracking. Uh, and that's really remarkable. Previously, if you wanted that level of, of detail, you needed to do something like uh, Google Tango, which incorporated uh, a depth camera. So this was another device that it was essentially a laser. So it, it uh, fired off an infrared laser in front of you and then reflected that laser back into a sensor on the phone, kind of like a flashlight. And it measured the time difference between each pixels. So what that meant was you actually got RGBD. So uh, D stands for depth. So you got a really accurate depth measurement. And using that information, you can plug that into the tracking algorithm and get that level of, of tracking accuracy. And that also give, you know, gives you some really other uh, interesting other things. With RGB, essentially, you get a, it's called a point cloud. So if you can track various points in uh, the camera image, if you get a slight difference between, you know, if you move your phone uh, even a few millimeters, points that are further away are going to move less in your camera image than if they're uh, close, closer to you. And so by measuring the difference between those points, you can get a measurement of uh, the three-dimensional distance and by doing that, then you get a point cloud. But it's a very sparse point cloud. You might get you know, um, about 1,000 points in any given camera image at, at best and, and on average you know, under 100. But with a depth camera, now you have a very rich point cloud. In, in fact, you know, every pixel in your, in your camera is now a point in, in 3D space. So you can do really cool things like building really complicated and detailed meshes. You can go around and scan a room. You can scan a chair and objects, and you can recognize objects. So... That, yeah, that's kind of the differential between the two of them. Okay, okay let's, let's go a little deeper there. So any frame that I am seeing in the world is basically a bitmap, right? Like it's, it's got an RG, every, every little pixel on my screen is representing an RGB, but in the world where we have a laser in, in our camera there is also a depth associated with each of those pixels. Am, am I understanding the mapping correctly? Correct, yep. Okay. And that gives us a more accurate view of the world, especially from the point of view of the... Or I guess it gives our computers a more accurate view of the world. No, so, so in order to generate that the the depth that is associated with each pixel on a frame are we does the laser that's getting reflected back how hard is it to map the feedback of the laser accurately with the image that's coming in through the other camera or like are there multiple cameras or is every is, is every everything coming in through the same camera 
uh, all at once? Or do you, I don't know. Do you know much about that? Or does that get too much into physics and stuff? Yeah, no, absolutely. So there are two cameras. One's the the plain RGB camera, and then the second one is the the depth camera. And so the way the depth camera works is it it's, it shines this laser on a particular pixel, and then waits for the uh, the reflection of that that laser beam, and it's got a unique timestamp on or a signal on it, so it recognizes that that reflection is that pixel. And oh my God. based on the timing of how how long it's taken to reflect off of that surface, you know how far away it is. Um, oh my we're, God! We're talking extremely extremely accurate uh, measurement, right? And especially if you're doing that, you know, many many times a second for every pixel in your frame, you, you were talking like um, I'm not sure what the scale is, but I'm guessing either nanoseconds or femtoseconds. And uh, but you're able to get a fairly accurate depth map. Um, you know, we've done a whole bunch of, of testing on this, and you know, you can get sometimes a half a centimeter in accuracy. And all it would, and the only reason it's not that accurate is because depth cameras are are really power intensive. You're, you're you know lasers aren't cheap so you're shining this laser out and if you shine that laser out many times a second your uh, the cpu frequency needs to go up and yada 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 right but yeah that's essentially how, how a depth camera works is is it's capturing that time of flight so it's no surprise to me that apple is pouring money into this pouring resources pouring strategic efforts into ar kit because this is an area where their manufacturing expertise can keep the costs reasonable while still getting super futuristic hardware features. And you can imagine this as being a, uh, a, a durable competitive advantage against Google as Google tries to move up market in the smartphone world. Now, is AR Core doing something similar to AR Kit? Yes, yeah, it's um, yeah, almost a direct copy, and there's so there's reasons for for this, and I think it plays into more of the strategy that we're seeing out of Google. So, just to get down in the weeds a little bit more, what you need for the amazing experience that ARKit has provided is tight integration between the hardware units. So your IMU is doing measurements many times a second, and then your camera is doing measurements many times a second, and you need to fuse those two sensors uh, many times a second to get your calculations. And as I mentioned. The reason why previous efforts at this had failed was because of accumulation of error. So what's really required is a centralized time chip where uh, when you get a measurement from the IMU, you get the the time stamp on it incredibly accurate, and you can line that up with the time stamp on the camera incredibly incredibly accurately. And uh, by doing that, you can you can minimize a lot of the error because if you have kind of if you can imagine if you have kind of offsets between the, the measurements, you know your uh, IMU the measurement from your IMU was done a split second after the measurement from the camera, you can't account for the very small amount of, of movement and so your calculation is going to be wrong. And that uh, error will accumulate over time. So Apple's been able to do this because they control the entire hardware stack. They've had uh, this integrated time chip for, from day one, essentially. With Google, because they've got such a fragmented ecosystem in, in hardware, and because Android manufacturers can only really differentiate themselves on a few key pieces now, one of which being the camera, they really don't have this this tight integration where, uh, you know, you so see your time chip might be on the uh, the SOC uh, for one chip, which is distinct from your camera unit. And so, so then you can't really do the, cal- the proper calculations and your your error accumulates. 
So with Tango, what they did was they mandated a, a certain bill of materials, which was, you know, you needed this depth camera at this specification, and this camera at this specification, and, the, and this chip at this specification. And so the manufacturers like uh, Acer and Lenovo were able to manufacture these and, and deliver the experience that Google uh, required. With AR Core, if you notice, the it, AR Core is only going to be supported on a couple of phones, i.e. the uh, Google Pixel and the Samsung S8. And my guess is that that's because they kind of got caught with their pants down when Apple did uh, ARKit. And so they, you know, really quickly went to Samsung and HTC, who manu- manufactured the Pixel, and was like, okay, we need t- um, tight, in- <laughs> tight integration between these things um, to, in order to produce AR Core and keep up with Apple. And, you know, very shortly after, they acquired HTC, which indicates to me that they really want to take control oh, of their, 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 their hardware top to bottom. So I think there's a few other reasons for it, but I think that was probably a large reason for it. You know, they want, they're a little bit behind in, in the VR game against, you know, Facebook with Oculus. Daydream, you know, they've done a great job with Daydream, but I think they wanted to bring the, the hardware for the Vive kind of in-house and, and really be able to drive that. But then in the augmented reality game, you know, if they were able to tightly integrate the manufacturing uh, with HTC with their Pixel line, uh, that will just help them in the future. So I, I think they are trying to take more control. And it's really interesting because, you know, historically, Apple tried to control the hardware back in the early Mac days, and that strategy failed miserably. The strategy that Microsoft took, which was, well, and Intel, which was kind of, you know, the, the piecemeal, you know, you can build computers yourself and blah, 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 that really worked out in, the, in that space. But what we've seen in the, in the smartphone space is that modular componentization really hasn't worked out. Uh, Google's um, Project Ada or whatever it was, they tried to build a modular smartphone, failed miserably, and now they're you know, following Apple's lead and building really tight hardware integration top to bottom. You've got to love the Apple haters who have been talking about how Apple doesn't innovate and Apple holds on too much to too much cash and they just accumulate cash and... It's like, well, you sometimes you gotta hold a lot of cash because you're gonna have to do some crazy investments in hardware advancements and like holding on to the platform is just like, you know, Apple's in a business where they had to stockpile cash, and I think now we're gonna start to see why that is. I completely agree. Um, I, I think they're uh, spending on on this space and R and D is is gonna be tremendous, and we're gonna see some really cool things come out of of what they're doing. Yeah. Okay. You know, I know our time is getting somewhat short and there's so much more I wanted to ask you about, but let's quickly go over HoloLens. Uh, In this world where uh, Apple is suddenly leading the way with its hardware integration and Google is struggling to catch up by acquiring HTC and trying to integrate its hardware all of a sudden, uh, where does Microsoft sit with the HoloLens? Yeah, I mean, uh, interestingly, Microsoft kind of led the way in this. The HoloLens came out way before uh, ARKit and ARCore, although, you know, if you go back, uh, Apple was obviously doing acquisitions in the AR space um, many years ago. You know, I, I really like the HoloLens. I think it's a fantastic fantastic device. They've they achieved essentially what ARKit did with really robust tracking in, in a, a head-worn device. And, you know, there's there's a lot of problems with it. You know, the field of view is small. It's a bit shocking when people first put it on. The the whole user interface and how you interact with the operating system is not great. Gesture interaction is not great. They've nailed voice control through through Cortana, so that's great. But, you know, overall, for, for a first try at a, a true augmented reality device, I, I would argue that Google Glass was not, a, you know, a true argument, augmented reality device. So I, I, this is the first, you know, real viable AR device with, with you know, really robust 
robust tracking, which is really what you need for a good augmented reality experience. They've just nailed it. So I'm really excited to, to see what comes in the next version now that they've learned, they put it in market and they've learned what the, the core competencies of the device are and the, uh, the killer use cases as well as the deficiencies. So I, I think the next version is going to be fantastic. Did, so can you con- contrast it? Like, how, how, does, how does Microsoft fare as a hardware company these days? Well, it's interesting. They gave up on all their phones. And I, but I think they're really making a big bet in the AR space with HoloLens. And, and then, you know, the mixed reality platform that they're building where, you know, they've got a whole bunch of partners for, for virtual reality. So, yeah, uh, I, I think they're doing everything right. I think they're keeping up with – and actually, I mean, Facebook didn't do so well with Oculus. Uh, Oculus sales haven't been great. Um, they, you know, I think they really overpaid for the platform. HTC kind of came out of nowhere and, and really dominated that for a long time. But Microsoft, I think, is doing a really great job at really identifying that niche. And, and uh, I'm really impressed, to be honest with you. Have you seen Magic Leap? No. Uh, I've tried a bunch of times, but uh, yeah, haven't seen it yet. <laughs> uh, have you heard anything about it? Uh, not that I can, I can say. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. We'll have to get coffee sometime. <laughs> Definitely. Maybe you'll tell me. Maybe you'll tell me off the air. Okay. Well, um, I guess we're nearing the end of our time. This was great, though. We definitely have to have you on again in the future, hopefully. Well, okay. Why didn't Google Glass work? I think Google Glass was released prematurely, and they mm. they put it out there. I, I I think it got out of control, honestly. I think they put it out there to see the public's reaction, and somebody decided that a mass release and you know it was going to be socially acceptable, and, and this was great. Um, and the public backlash was just uh, well. I mean, we all know what happened, but I really don't think they thought through the use cases. It, it was really not ready for prime time. I got mine, and I was really excited about it for about the first week, and then I put it away, and it hasn't seen the light of day since that first week, which is crazy for a $1,500 device. That was a giant waste of money. And I think most people felt that way. You know, I was at Google I.O. Um, the year they launched it, and virtually everybody had theirs on as a badge of honor. And just a year later, I saw, like, one or two guys with it on. Um, so that fad really faded pretty quickly. But it was because you couldn't do anything with it. You know, you could maybe take a, a screenshot, or you could, you know, send an email really quickly or a text message, but it, it was nothing you couldn't do with your smartphone and almost arguably easier. You know, I, I thought the killer use case would be when I, when I go cycling, I would be able to take screenshots and, and keep up with sure. my text messages, right? But it didn't work. You know, while I'm cycling, the voice control didn't work because it was too loud. Uh. I couldn't take my hands off uh, my, my, my handlebars to, you know, play with the rudimentary gestures. And so that killer, ca- killer use case didn't work. And I really couldn't find a utility for it. I'm not sure. Any, well, I mean, clearly, people couldn't. But, you know, like anything, there are killer use cases for it. And I think they've found a nice niche in, in the enterprise again. And that's delivering really rudimentary text instructions in your field of view to, to workers. And that solves the problem of workers not having to carry around papers or tablets that can get um, broken or dirty and they're tough to, to handle with, you know, work gloves on. Now you can just talk to your device and, and it shows you r- rudimentary things. And so, again, you know, coming back to the enterprise, that's really where the, the use cases are, are first being adopted with this, you know, admittedly clunky technology. But if it saves time and money, uh, businesses will adopt it. All right, Scott. Well, it's been great having you on the show. Uh, next time you have a product launch or you give a conference talk that you want to get some broader appeal to, uh, let me know. We'll have you back on the show. It was great talking to you. That'd be great. Very nice talking to you too, Jeff. Wow.